Welcome to episode four of the Upper Memory Block podcast. As usual, I am your host, Joe, and uh, it has once again been two weeks, which means that it is once again time for me to put out another show. Uh, really enjoyed the show last week on SimCity, got some good feedback on that show, so it seems like I'm uh, I'm on the right track with this to a certain extent. So anyways, um, welcome to uh, to anyone who uh, who's picked up the show since uh, since episode three, or if this is the first episode you're listening to, welcome, welcome, welcome. I've seen a little bit of an influx of uh, of new listeners over the past few weeks, and uh, I guess that means that I'm doing something right. Hooray! Anyways, with regard to me, I know in the last episode I was talking about my uh, half marathon training. Well, as of, uh, I guess, three days ago now, I ran that half marathon along with my wife, Fran. Uh, and, you know, we had a lot of fun. I had a great time. You know, there were parts of it that were a little bit more challenging than others, but uh, this is the second half marathon that uh, that I've run and the third one that Fran has run, and uh, we didn't get quite as much time in for training as we usually, uh, as we've done in the past, so we didn't do quite as well as, uh, as we have in the past, but we had a good time. We got to the end and uh, got a fun little medal, put up some pictures on Facebook, and uh, it just motivated us and me specifically and Fran as well to... Uh, to do another one and to pick it up and to train a little harder and uh, and get a better time and do uh, do what we got to do. So a lot of fun. Running is awesome. It's a great high. And uh, I had a really good time running the Mississauga Half Marathon 2012. Hooray. So that is that about me. That's kind of the big news. So aside from that, there has also been a little tiny bit of news over the past two weeks. Uh, mostly, again... Uh, revolving around some Kickstarter projects. So shortly after uh, our show last week, when I talked about the Leisure Suit Larry Kickstarter, that ended and it funded and, uh, you know, people who put money into that uh, project uh, had their money taken from them from Kickstarter. And uh, the, the Larry guys actually posted a link in their thank you message on their project to uh, to another Kickstarter being run by a company called Pinkerton Road or a game studio called Pinkerton Road. This studio is uh, is actually being run by uh, Jane Jensen and her husband. If you guys don't remember specifically, uh, Jane Jensen was the brainchild behind uh, the Gabriel Knight games from Sierra that I'm sure at some point I will be covering on this podcast because I really, really, really enjoyed Gabriel Knight. And uh, her and her husband are are, are starting this uh, this company called Pinkerton Road, this game studio, and um, they are looking to put out kind of mystery style, eerie adventure games, similar in vain to Gabriel Knight, and with the eventual goal of making actual new Gabriel Knight games. So if you go on to Kickstarter, uh, I think they still have a, a decent amount of time left on their Kickstarter. Uh, so if you go to the site and you search Jane Jensen, that's Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N, uh, or Pinkerton Road, or Mobius, which is the name of the first game they are trying to put out. Uh, you can find information about that and a video and updates and everything that's going on with all of that. So that's uh, that's one of the, the cool kind of Sierra 
inspired Kickstarters that's out. And just, I believe, yesterday, another really, really big Sierra Kickstarter that I am incredibly, incredibly excited for. And I actually really only wanted to talk about it next week, but I can't wait two weeks to tell you guys about this one. So the two guys from Andromeda, also known as, I believe, Scott Murphy and Mark Crow, have started a Kickstarter. They're back together. There was apparently some uh, some issues, some personal issues between them that had cropped up over the years. And so they've uh, they've made their amends. They've, they've become friends again. And... Uh, they've gotten back together as the two guys from Andromeda, and they are going to put out a new game in the vein of Space Quest. Rick Moyer, I know right now you are jumping up and down. So yes, the game is called Space Venture, and uh, their Kickstarter started yesterday. Um, I've already given to it because I'm so excited about this. And uh, they have something to the effect of 35 days or 34 days remaining on their Kickstarter. They're hoping to raise, I believe it's $500,000, just like the Larry Kickstarter did. And uh, it seems to be going well for now, but most uh, most Kickstarter projects have strong uh, beginnings and then they kind of taper off in the middle. So if you liked Roger Wilco and if you liked Space Quest and if you loved all the great humor and fun gameplay of, uh, of that, then again, go to Kickstarter and search for the two guys from Andromeda or Space Adventure, as opposed to Space Adventure. It's just one word, Space Adventure. Actually, they even got the... Uh, the announcer from Space Quest 4, who is also the voice of, uh, of Space Ghost, and the announcer from Laugh-In. So, um, yeah, they're, they have a lot of big-name voices, and they have good developers, and the two main guys are in on that. So it's really exciting. It looks like they're going to come out with something pretty cool. So, yes, Kickstarter. Search for two guys from Andromeda. And uh, I will definitely follow this Kickstarter very closely as it progresses and uh, most likely talk about it in more detail in our next episode. So aside from that, that's kind of all the the big Kickstarter news for the week. Oh, actually today, this is a breaking news, just today. Today on, I'm recording this on Wednesday. Uh, today is the 20th anniversary, yes, the 20th anniversary of, uh, of Wolfenstein 3D. And so today on, uh, there's a couple of things going on. There's a browser, in-browser version of Wolfenstein 3D that's available to play for free. Uh, I don't have the link for that right off the top of my head because I remember just reading about it a short while ago. But uh, you can go play Wolfenstein 3D in your browser for free and you can buy the uh, the original game on Steam for $1.24 US. So that's another cool thing. I believe that is today only. So unfortunately, I think when this... By the time this podcast get gets out, uh, it'll be too late. I, I did post it on, on the show's Twitter account at uh, twitter.com slash UMB show. And uh, I posted it on our Facebook group, which I started, I believe, between the show, between the last show and this show. You know, hopefully the word got out there and, and you guys were able to get Wolfenstein 3D for, for a little more than a dollar. So that's awesome. Now, a little side note, little or a little update on the DOS Gaming Box project. So the DOS Gaming Box is about 99% ready to go. And actually with the state it's in right now, I can play I can play some older games. I'm still uh, I'm still waiting on the the Canadian Postal Service to uh, to get me the uh, the sound blaster that uh, that Jeff fired off from Alberta. That should be here any day now. And then once that is put in, I also received um, I received my uh, my Riva TNT2 
card that I had ordered off of eBay and I popped that in and unlike the original card that was in there, it boom, worked right away. Uh, Windows XP, or sorry, Windows XP, uh, I'm getting, getting ahead of myself here. Windows 98, uh, recognized it right away, popped up, said, you know, NVIDIA, Riva, TNT2 or TNT Pro. It uh, allowed me to adjust my display settings and all of that. So now I'm just short one sound card, which is uh, which is shortly coming. And I'll have a fully realized uh, Pentium 2 with Windows 98 and uh, fun CRT screen to uh, to play my games on. So now that the news is over, I will get on to gaming. So before I get to today's main topic, which is the 1994 Microprose software game XCOM UFO Defense, uh, I actually have a voicemail from uh, my good friend Mike from London talking about SimCity. So guys, you know, if um, if you do miss the deadline to get you know a comment into the show for the game we're talking about, or any previous games we were talking about, and uh, you know, like I said, you missed the deadline. Feel free to send them. I'll play them on the next show. And uh, you know, I, I love having participation from the audience, from all you listeners, because uh, hearing just me talk for an entire hour is not entirely interesting, at least in my mind. So uh, here we go. Fun voicemail from Mike. Take it away, sir. Hey Joe, Mike from London. I know you've done SimCity, and I know I said I was gonna do a comment for it. Well, I'm afraid this is it, somewhat late, but there you go. Um, the thing with SimCity is it's it's always fascinated me. I think SimCity 2000 was the only PC version I had, and certainly I played it for years for as, as long as my computers would cope with it. I think I got one city up to the point of our colleges or whatever they were called. But the fascination for me always seemed to be in balancing everything. Uh, on the simplistic side, that's getting the power and the water in, but more on the uh, on, on the more complex side, it was very much settling the tax rates to try and keep steady rate of growth across all three different types of area. What were they? The commercial, the industrial, and the residential. Responding to, to things like that, I'd tend to build up a city and just sort of whack in equal amounts of areas. Later on, I started to put them in in sort of I guess light density, then switch over to medium, you know, demolish everything, switch to medium density, demolish everything, switch to heavy density. I really tried to build it up city-wise. Don't ask me why, it's obviously something to do with, with my state of mind. And Ultimately, when I'd done well enough, I'd always clear a little, cent little bit in the centre, put a lot of parks in it, put my town hall in the middle of that, and then get a statue to myself. But, you know, it's one of those odd games. There is no, I think as you said, there's no way to win. There's no great reward. But as I say, with me, it was just trying to get everything to balance, to keep everything settled. So that if, if there was a busy road, I'd put a bypass in, which is probably very British and doesn't really apply in sort of continental United States. But around here, you stick a road around the town, but as close to it as you possibly can to try and keep the traffic out of the very narrow streets in some of our, our older towns. And it was all about management. It was all about balance. And for some reason, yeah, that fascinated me. Perhaps it's a sign of some frustration I have in my real world life that I have to go and uh, administer this this online world. Don't know what it is. I mean, since those times, I've I've had versions of SimCity on my Palm devices for a while. I've got one on my iPhone now. I was playing it last week again after listening to your 
uh, podcast on on stuff. Um, I've forgotten what most of the controls on the on the iPhone version do now, and the, the attraction is still there. Just trying to get everything. I I want order. That's what I want. I want order. I'm a beneficial despot or something. Don't know what it is. Nobody would ever elect me, nor should they. Anyway, rambling now. Thanks for looking at the game. It's uh, fascinating to hear some of the background and some of the other stuff, and it, it brought back an awful lot of, of memories of the days when I could spend happy hours in front of the computer. Says the man who's just let his kids onto the Xbox and rushed upstairs to record this. You know, one day I'll get on the Xbox. Anyway, definitely off topic. I'll talk to you later. Cheers. Thank you so much, Mike, for that. And, you know, you're right. And it's it's interesting to see how different people played uh, played SimCity because of the whole kind of sandbox, you know, game toy kind of mentality about it. And there's really no direction to, to how you, you were forced to play the game. You know, everyone would play it differently. And, and as you said, depending on either your state of mind at the time or your temperament in general or how organized or disorganized or despotic or benevolent you are, you everyone has a totally different game experience and everyone's terms of winning or everyone's winning conditions are, are totally different. And, you know, I think that's what makes that game really, really, really incredible and uh, and a lot of fun. But, you know, I, I said all that last week and and I'm glad you enjoyed that show and that you got something out of it. So so thank you very much. Thank you for that. And as I said, if anyone else is happy to, if anyone else wants to send in any comments about anything, I'm, I'm more than happy to play them. Thank you very, very much. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for all right, the overview. So as I said before, the voicemail this week, we are talking about XCOM UFO Defense, or known in uh, in the land where Mike hails from as uh, UFO, Enemy Unknown. And we will get into that a little bit more in a while. But this game was released by Microprose Software in the year 1994. XCOM UFO Defense is the first in a series of five games, and uh, we, there is actually a sixth game currently in development. But uh, this version is uh, definitely hailed by many, both fans and reviewers, as one of the best or the best incarnation of the series, or at the very least, the purest incarnation of the series. So, as we usually do, let's talk a little bit about the genre of XCOM UFO Defense. So, XCOM is a critically acclaimed example of a turn-based tactical strategy game. Uh, the roots of this genre can really be compared to something to the sense of, or something to the effect of playing chess, something which I have personally always been very, very awful at. It can also be compared to, say, the, the combat aspects of uh, tabletop games like Dungeons & Dragons, where you have a certain amount of points and you take, a, you, know, you take a certain amount of action based on your abilities and uh, you know, proceed to defeat your enemies and survive and do other various things like that. So these types of games emphasize careful planning and skillful thinking in order to achieve victory. Each player, be they human-controlled or computer-controlled, takes the time that they need to move each of their pieces to complete their turn. Uh, games of this type tend to simulate kind of more small-scale uh, military scenarios where the player tries to issue orders to individual units as opposed to, say, 
uh, larger scale actions like you would have in a game like Command and Conquer or even larger scale in a game like Civilization. Uh, generally, there's some type, actually not generally, almost all the time, uh, there's some type of artificial limitation placed on how many actions a player can perform per turn using some form of action point system or movement point system or basically some type of point system which uh, which allows the or which limits the action per turn. Uh, so well, this is the main crux of XCOM, this kind of tactical turn-based uh, strategy game. It also does depart from the traditional turn-based tactics formula by adding a second strategic management metagame on top of the turn-based combat aspects of the game. Uh, so there is kind of more of a management civilization style aspect to the game. Uh, and success at one part of the game hinges directly on success in the other. So we'll talk a little bit more about this as we uh, as we get into it. So the story of XCOM, I guess we should get into this. Well, the game doesn't really provide a ton in the way of kind of compelling narrative while you're playing the game. Uh, the manual does provide a bit about the background of the universe that uh, you're kind of dropped into. So I will read that. So it goes, it is the year 1999. Unidentified flying objects, UFOs, have started appearing with disturbing regularity in the night skies. Reports of violent human abductions and horrific experimentation has struck terror into the hearts of millions. Mass public hysteria has only served to expose Earth's impotence against a vastly superior technology. Many countries have attempted to deal independently with the aliens. In August of 1998, Japan established an anti-alien combat force, the Kirukai. Equipped with Japanese-made fighter aircraft, the Kirukai certainly looked like a powerful force. However, after five months of expensive operations, they had yet to intercept their first UFO. The lesson was clear. This was a worldwide problem which could not be dealt with by individual countries. On December 11, 1998, representatives from the world's most economically powerful countries gathered secretly in Geneva. After much debate, the decision was made to establish a covert, independent body to combat, investigate, and defeat the alien threat. 
This organization would be equipped with the world's finest pilots, soldiers, scientists, and engineers, working together as one multinational force. This organization was named the Extraterrestrial Combat Unit. So yeah, there we are. Uh, you start the game as the worldwide commander of the Extraterrestrial Combat Unit, shortened or abbreviated as XCOM. And you have the finest of Earth's technology at your disposal. You will learn very, very quickly within uh, the first couple of minutes of your first combat mission that uh, Earth's best technology, eh, not all that great. Uh, luckily, as the game progresses, your scientists and engineers can learn from captured alien technology to get your soldiers up to speed. So let's talk a little bit about XCOM's gameplay. XCOM and the major, the vast majority of its uh, follow-up incarnations take place in two distinct game modes, the Geoscape and the Battlescape. So let's start with the Geoscape. This is where that uh, secondary uh, strategic metagame that I talked about takes place. It's also the first thing you see when you start a new game. Now. Right off the bat, I'm, I'm going to be honest here. I honestly did not play much XCOM back in the 90s. So I wasn't intent. I knew, I knew about the game. I knew about its popularity and everything like that. But uh, I don't have a ton of experience playing it myself. So when I first installed the game off of Steam and uh, I started a new game, it reminded me of something that up until this point doing this podcast, I had really forgotten about with older games. Uh, older games do not have in-game tutorials. I, every game these days starts off with with a very basic tutorial. This is how you move. This is how you jump. This is how you do this function. This is how you build a base. This is how you fight, and all that. Most older games, and even all of the older all of the games that I have already covered, do not have in-game tutorials. Uh, the thing with this is that, you know, I played the crap out of Wing Commander and I played the boop out of SimCity. So I fired them up and even though it's been 10, 15, you know, more than that, even years since I played them, I was right back at home. I knew all what all the buttons did and all of that. So um, XCOM, frankly, presented me with a mystery. I was uh, dropped into a screen with a representation of the globe on it that... I could rotate around and zoom, and there was a big message at the top of the screen saying, select site for new base. And along with kind of a list of buttons going down the right side of the screen, marked intercept, bases, graphs, UFOpedia, options, highlight, and a clock, and a bunch of time interval buttons. And upon seeing this and being momentarily confused, I remembered a very important aspect of DOS gaming. Uh, I had to read the manual. Uh, luckily, the 134-page XCOM manual was readily available with only a very, very rudimentary amount of Google Foo, although I can't comprehend why Steam doesn't just bundle it with your download, because I looked all over the official area of Steam and, uh, and I couldn't find a link to it to save my life. Uh, so the manual contains some pretty good starter tutorials if you haven't played the game at all or you haven't played it in a very long time. So anyways, all that aside, back to the uh, the Geoscape. Uh, this is the view from which you perform most of the game's management functions. Uh, every new game begins on January 1st, 1999, and your first task is to place uh, or site or find the site for your, uh, for your first base. 
Now, this is as simple as clicking a spot on the map, but since, of course, this is a strategy game, even this first step probably should require a little bit of, uh, of thought. Um, initially, XCOM is funded by a coalition of 16 nations across the world. Uh, placing your base in a country that provides high funding is usually a good idea, and another recommended tactic is to place your first base as close to the middle of a large landmass as possible to maximize the chances of detecting UFOs over land. Um, I, in my playthrough, started placing things kind of in the middle of the North American continent, kind of a little bit south of the Canadian border. I know it apparently wasn't a good tactic to place it in Canada, so uh, I had to put my nationalism aside and I kind of stuck it around kind of the North Central United States to kind of cover as much ground as possible. So boom, you place your first base. Uh, it gets created and it has a bunch of basic amenities such as hangars, research labs, supply storage, etc. Uh, this is the only base in the game that you get that comes kind of pre-built. Any additional bases have to be built and paid for kind of from the ground up. So if you place a secondary base, the only thing you kind of really get a little bit for free is an access lift and everything else. If you want to have hangers, if you want to have radar, if you want to have blah, 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 uh, you got to pay for it all. So now that you have a base, you have the ability to enter the base screen to begin managing your life. Uh, from the base screen, you can research things like new technologies, uh, you can equip your soldiers and your vehicles, you can manufacture new equipment, you can expand your base with new modules that provide you with uh, different capabilities or upgraded capabilities, like things like uh, alien containment where you can store captured aliens, uh, better radar that has longer range, Psi training facilities, and much, much, much more. Management of your bases, management of research, management of your personnel and equipment is crucial to success uh, in the game. Uh, and at the end of each game month, because time kind of as you're in the, uh, the geoscape screen uh, progresses at uh, the rate at which you can set with, different, uh, with the different buttons. Uh, so at the end of each month, you get a... Uh, you get a funding report from kind of the, the funding coalition of nations. Each nation's funding level can go up or down depending on how they, uh, they view your performance during that month and how you've kind of, how your performance has rated overall and also how your performance has directly benefited or been detrimental to each, um, each specific nation. As much as it does matter how much you receive from them, you quickly, quickly realize that you cannot succeed in this game solely on this kind of monthly stipend from uh, from the Coalition of Nations. Uh, there's a few ways to make money in the game, but it generally boils down to uh, managing kind of a balance of minimizing your monthly maintenance costs and uh, also selling off things that you no longer uh, that you no longer need because all base facilities, all your personnel and all your equipment costs money to maintain each month. And uh, so you know you kind of have to manage your expenditures because once you, go too low and for you know if you uh if you lose something like a million dollars for two months straight then uh, then you lose the game so once you're done fiddling with your base you can exit back to the geoscape view and you can accelerate time because now you're going to play the waiting game for something to occur uh, eventually and it's not very long trust me uh an alert will likely appear saying a ufo has been detected in the vicinity of your base now the action begins all right uh, you can scramble uh, one to four of your interceptors to attempt to shoot down the UFO. The reason I say one to four is you can actually 
launch more than four you four uh, four vehicles at a time, but you can only target up to four interceptors or four vehicles in general on a single UFO. Uh, so you scramble your interceptors and you attempt to shoot down the UFO. Uh, the UFOs tend to be much faster than your interceptors, so they may just outrun you, but generally they slow down for some unknown reason at certain points and you can catch, you can, uh, catch up with them. Uh, the other option is that the UFO may land on the ground. Uh, if this happens, your interceptors are their only air-to-air aircraft, and uh, they can't do anything. So you can do one of two things in this situation. You can leave your interceptors kind of hovering around and you can wait for the UFO to take off again. This doesn't really have any detrimental effect on anything. The other thing you can do is you can scramble a transport, you know, filled with soldiers and you can attempt to take the UFO kind of undamaged. This tends to be quite challenging, and the recommendation, at least in the early game, is to uh, wait for the UFO to take off and try to shoot it down. Uh, so if you do finally catch up, if and when, because it does obviously occur, uh, if when you do catch up with the, uh, the UFO in the air, the, the air-to-air combat window appears. And uh, here you're offered a few options on how, to, how aggressively to attack and how defensively to attack, and you can take time to observe the UFO, which will pop up kind of a little image of it so you can see what it looks like. Uh, you can also disengage your attack. And now the trick with interception is to make sure you shoot down your target over land. Because apparently uh, UFOs, when they crash into the water, uh, sink. And the aliens can't swim and your soldiers can't swim. Because if you shoot down a UFO over water, it's lost and you have basically gained nothing from uh, from this attack. So the trick, again, is to shoot it down over land, and if you do, and it does crash on land, you can then send in your soldiers to investigate the crash site, and uh, this will now bring your soldiers into direct contact with the aliens. And this brings us to the second, and for me, much, much more challenging part of this game, known as the Battlescape. So the Battlescape. The Battlescape is the tactical turn-based uh, portion of the game, and I would argue kind of the main thrust and the bulk, main bulk of the game. So whereas in the Geoscape, you are managing your forces at kind of a macro, global, godlike CEO level, you're now down in the Battlescape to the nitty-gritty. You're down to managing individual units, squad-based tactics, all this stuff. So when you, where you went from the high-level view, you're now right down into the low-level view. So before you're shown the Battlescape screen, you're given the option of adjusting the loadouts of all of your soldiers or uh, heavy weapons platforms, which are basically things like tanks and stuff uh, once you've researched them. You can do this beforehand, but at times it's nice to. You may want to make some quick modifications. You can give units additional weapons, ammo, armor, and equipment at this point before you start at no penalty. Once the battle begins, however, uh, adjusting your soldiers' loadouts becomes a little bit more, a little bit more difficult. Costs time units, and so you know if there's anything you really want to do, now's the time to do it. And anything you do in combat should be kind of uh, for emergency purposes only. So once that's complete, you uh, you move into this uh, kind of third person or sorry, 3D isometric view, kind of like we saw in uh, in SimCity last episode. 
Your units begin inside of their transport, and your goal is now to kill or stun all of the aliens in the area while minimizing loss to your forces. So for every kind of battlescape scenario, there's three possible outcomes. Uh, either one, all the aliens are neutralized, which is the victory condition. All XCOM forces are lost, which is what tends to happen to me. <laughs> and, uh, or the XCOM forces withdraw, which is kind of a draw, but also is only slightly better than losing all your guys. Uh, this is where the real challenge of the game exists, and for me personally, even at easy difficulty, I find this game to be quite, quite unforgiving. Uh, so you exit your forces from uh, however many units of, uh, of your forces you want out of the transport. And uh, you kind of scout around the map looking for aliens and, uh, and doing your best to eliminate them. And this is where the game really does shine. Even with relatively rudimentary graphics and sound you know, that they had in 1994, XCOM is a very, very atmospheric game. Uh, as you complete your turns, the aliens move in real time. Now, I don't mean real time as in everyone moves at the same time, but I mean the computer does not kind of accelerate its movements. You know, if there are many aliens to move, the computer's turn can take a decent amount of time. It looks like the computer pauses kind of to, to think the computer moves the aliens at the rate at which they move. Nothing is accelerated. And uh, if the aliens moving are not directly in any of your unit's line of sight, a black and white screen appears simply saying, hidden movement. And so while you can't see what the aliens are doing, you just see this hidden movement screen, you can hear them walk, you can hear them open doors, you can hear them fire on civilians. And this effect really, really does create suspense because you can't see, but you can hear. It's just like it's, it's like you're in a horror movie. You know, you have no idea what's going on. You just hear things and, uh, you know, it's just, wow. I don't know. It, it, it's very impressive. So each of your units has, uh, has varying abilities such as strength, accuracy, health, blah, blah, blah. Uh, equipping your soldiers according to their strengths is a good way to, to definitely give yourself an advantage. So you want to give kind of your heavy weapons, your auto cannons, your rocket launchers, your heavy plasma cannons and all that stuff to your strongest soldiers and they will incur less movement penalties. Uh, you want to give your long range weapons to your most accurate units, use the quickest or units or the units with the most time units uh, as scouts. Basically, you know, your people are not all clones of each other. They're different people. They have different skills. They have different abilities. And as your units kind of continue to survive combat and they gain experience, uh, they increase in rank and their stats also increase with use. So if you make a unit shoot a lot, his accuracy with weapons will increase. If you send him for psionic training, then his psi ability will increase and things like that. So it's not like you're giving people points or you know, you're leveling up your units, you're basically leveling up your individual soldiers and vehicles skills by making them do things. The more you make them do things, the better they get at it. So it's kind of a very real world learn on the job and get better as you gain experience system, which, uh, which, is, which is really cool and was actually really quite novel at the time. And not only that, it seems as though games, especially at the time, did not really go that route and even up until now i know there's some games now i think like uh i believe skyrim or kingdoms of amalur or things like that are 
you know, you can build your characters this way by saying, okay, well, I want to get good with a sword. So you pick up a sword and start hacking things and you get better with a sword. But, uh, you know, traditionally it was more like, oh, your units gained a level, give him points to accuracy and give him points to dexterity. And, you know, this is a much more realistic way to go about that, which I think is quite cool. Now, in addition to all of this, your units have morale. Some have higher morale than others. And morale kind of is a bit of kind of a measure of, of their bravery and, and their confidence. So if their morale drops too low because of either, you know, being attacked by aliens, being, you know, having psionic attacks, like a panic done on them, or, you know, if a lot of higher ranking soldiers die, their morale will decrease. And if their morale gets too low, then they can panic. They can run off. They can drop all their weapons. And at times they could even drop, uh, if you have, a, if you're holding a primed grenade, they can drop that and kill themselves. Yeah, I mean it's 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 quite a cool quite a cool combat system they have uh, they have set up here. Uh, in addition to your units having a variety of abilities, of course, the enemies also have a variety of abilities. Uh, information about these aliens as you encounter them uh, gets gets put into your UFOpedia, which you can study in the uh, in the Geoscape view. Uh, some aliens are very very fast, but they're quite weak, you know, armor wise. Some of them have quite strong melee attacks. And, uh, you know, they don't have ranged attacks at all. Uh, others use weapons. And yet others are very, very powerful psionic aliens. So they can easily, they can mind control your soldiers. They can panic them. They can do a hole. They can incapacitate them otherwise. I mean, it's, there's really quite a wide variety of enemies and quite a wide variety of tactics to use against them. So once, uh, once, once this is all said and done, once you successfully neutralize all the aliens on the map, your surviving units dust off. And uh, as they leave they kind of capture any abandoned alien technology uh they also capture any stunned but still alive aliens and if one of your bases or if the base that your uh craft is returning to has an alien containment unit and i believe it needs to be uh it needs to have space in it uh you can then interrogate your prisoners the game simply refers to this as doing research i uh i'm making air quotes but uh, doing this quote-unquote research, aka interrogation, uh, allows you to continue to develop your technology. Capturing uh, certain types of aliens results in different technological advancements. Uh, for example, to research psionic power, which becomes quite useful uh, further on in the game, you need to capture and research a sectoid leader, a sectoid commander, or any kind of ethereal alien. Now, this will allow you to build psi labs in all of your bases, to have your soldiers assessed for psionic abilities, and to have them trained to use uh, their psi abilities in combat, provided they are equipped with the appropriate equipment, which is referred to as psi amps, or which are referred to as psi amps. These are kind of, I guess, not, not really weapons, but I guess they can be considered weapons that your soldiers will carry around which uh, amplifies their psionic power and allows them to use psionic abilities so as the game progresses uh you'll expand your main base with uh you know many more facilities and uh you will expand and build additional bases and uh again there's no set way to go about building your additional bases there's uh but there are of course some uh some recommended strategies to do this uh, one way that the uh, the game itself kind of recommends is uh, to try and replicate your main base across all bases. So kind of create quite a few bases that, that are well-rounded and that do everything. Uh, this is a way to go about doing it. But uh, as I've read, 
it uh, it doesn't seem it's not very easy to accomplish. It's very very expensive. So uh, another option that many players seem to uh, seem to appreciate or seem to take advantage of is uh, to create bases aside from your main base to create additional bases which are for very specific purposes. So you can create things like uh, radar base, which will only really contain radar, some barracks, and uh, just a small complement of guards. And uh, these kind of little outposts will help increase your uh, your alien detection range. So if you kind of see an area where there's a lot of alien activity that you don't think you're you're catching, you can place a radar base there, and that will uh, that will allow you to detect things in that area. Uh, other things you can do is uh, is build an interception base, which will house just uh, some interception aircraft, and again a small complement of guards, or um, create a manufacturing base which will house primarily uh, engineers maybe some scientists who create a research manufacturing base and there you know you can uh, concentrate on your research and create uh, create cool new equipment to equip your your units with so on top of this uh, again every aspect of this game kind of involves strategy so even the layout of your bases has kind of a strategic element to it I mean you are you are again, permitted to throw your base together pretty much any way you want, aside from the fact that all of your compartments need to be connected together and all ultimately need to connect back to the access lift. However, the aliens can attack your bases. As I said, the bases will function however you lay them out, but if you can set them up to kind of have minimal paths, like maybe almost a single path through the entire base without many intersections and things like that, and you and uh, you know if you can create some interesting choke points and things like that it will be much much easier to defend your bases in the event of an alien invasion your soldiers that are stationed at the bases will uh will have a much easier time and you will have a much easier time defending things and not losing your guys so in addition to intercepting crashed ufos and defending your bases uh you also have to intervene whenever UFOs land in populated areas and embark on what is called terror missions. So in these missions, the aliens will land in a populated area and they will terrorize and kill civilians in kind of that uh, in that location. It is of prime importance, prime importance, that you stop these terror missions from succeeding because if you don't, the target nation where the terror mission kind of took place will almost certainly pull out of the XCOM project and they will reduce your base funding level, which will make the game immensely, immensely more challenging. Uh, on top of that, you can also, if you can find any alien bases which get established on Earth, you can assault them in kind of the opposite of the aliens attack on your bases. And uh, another trick, if you want to try and make money, is uh, you actually can detect alien bases and leave them be, not actually destroy them. And if you do that, and you can kind of keep some detection range around those alien bases, or some detection ability around those alien bases, there's a pretty constant influx of alien supply ships that, uh, that fly into those bases to, I guess, you know, f fictionally resupply them. But you can keep intercepting those supply ships, and they tend to be relatively lightly defended, and uh, you can use that to increase your stable of supplies and uh, either resupply your soldiers or sell them off to make money. So all these different aspects of the game keep kind of going on and on and on until you capture a certain kind of high-ranking alien leader 
and this leads you to the victory condition of the game. So capturing this height, ranking alien leader, and interrogating him will cause your will cause XCOM, I guess we want to say, to uh, to learn the location of the main alien base off planet. I won't ruin it for you by telling you where it is. Uh, you're then given the option of launching a very challenging final assault on the main alien base. So if you clear the base of aliens and eliminate their threat once and for all, then uh, then you win the game until they come back in the sequel, that is. So yes, uh, very, very cool gameplay, very, very novel, very creative, very challenging. And, uh, you know, this this game really, really does uh, really does work your mind and sometimes to the point of frustration, at least for me. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Graphics. So let's talk about the graphics and sound in this game. So XCOM UFO Defense required at least a 386 20 megahertz with two megs of RAM, a hard drive, VGA graphics, and at least MS-DOS 5.0. So unlike uh, some of our previous games, this one's getting a little newer and uh, is actually requiring things like VGA and, uh, and DOS 5 or newer. It was distributed on both discs and CD-ROM, though as far as I know, and please, you know, someone let me know if I'm wrong, but I don't believe there was any difference between the disc version and the CD version, but again, I may be mistaken about that. So the game displayed 320 by 200, or sorry, 320 by 240 VGA graphics in 256 colors. It had music that was uh, general MIDI audio. However, a PlayStation version followed that retained the original VGA graphics, but was enhanced with much better uh, CD audio tracks. As I mentioned in the gameplay section, while the graphics are not really stellar by today's standards, and not even necessarily really stellar by the standards of 1994, uh, they're good enough, and uh, you know they, they serve their purpose. I didn't feel like I was looking at a horrible game, and I wasn't really taken out of things by the way the graphics looked. Uh, the music, which was primarily composed by John Broomhall on the PC version is really, really, really perfect. It's ambient, it's eerie, and it provides the perfect backdrop to the game and really, really adds to that feeling of unease I was talking about while, while you're playing in the battlescape and even kind of a sense of urgency when you're, when you're playing in the geoscape. So obviously you've been hearing a little bit of, uh, of the soundtrack in the background throughout this segment. This is a little bit of the uh, the Battlescape music from the PlayStation version. Uh, so, you know, like I said, sounds nice and eerie and a little bit unsettling. So I'll let this run for, for another couple of seconds just to continue giving you a bit of an idea about how this uh, how this all goes. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... So the development story. So there's a, a, a bit of an interesting story, as there is with many games that I uh, that I cover on this show with regard to the development of, uh, of XCOM. So the idea for XCOM UFO Defense 
came from the minds of brothers Julian and Nick G or sorry, Gollop. Julian and Nick Gollop. When Julian was young, his father was uh, was very much into playing board and tabletop games. He he stated in an interview that at Christmas, instead of sitting around and watching movies or something quote unquote normal, uh, they would sit around and play board games. Uh, because of this, Julian eventually began to create his own board games until he created a specific board game called Time Lords, which I don't believe is related to Doctor Who, but well, he's British, so it may very well be. Uh, he wanted to turn Time Lords into a computer game, so he got a group of his friends together and formed a company called Redshift. And give and take into account now, at this point in time, he was either still in high school or very, very recently graduated from high school. So they did him and his, his pals or whatever at, at Redshift uh, developed Time Lords for the the BBC Micro. Again, we come across uh, the same as Chris Roberts from Wing Commander. Uh, people starting to develop games for these, this BBC Microsystem. So I may have to get one of the uh, one of my British friends on, on the show at one point or have them send me a voicemail kind of talking about these BBC systems because it really does seem like uh, they were the impetus for a lot of these game developers of this time to, to start developing games. So anyways, they developed a show for the BBC or this game for the BBC Micro and sold it at computer fairs in a Ziploc bag containing a, a cassette with a, uh, with a cardboard insert. This was the year 1983. Julian continued to develop games with his friends at Redshift until about 1985. So by the time 1988 rolled around, he had uh, he'd developed a couple of other games, but uh, in 1988, he founded another company called Target Games, where his brother Nick Gollop joined him as a programmer. Uh, one of the first games that Target worked on was a game called Laser Squad, which was a tactical squad-based game, which uh, took into account things like unit facing, hidden movement, line of sight, and uh, a lot of things that, uh, that we've already talked about with regard to XCOM. So you can kind of see where, where his mind was at the time, even way before XCOM was, uh, was an idea. Uh, they self-published this game, Blazer Squad, and it, it turned out to be a moderate success. With that kind of moderate success behind them, they decided to go around and look for a distributor, a distributor for uh, for a couple of their other games. They went into a deal with a company called Blade Software, and uh, they did two games with them, which had kind of lukewarm receptions. And um, they decided that this wasn't really the best situation, and uh, they had to do two things. The thing, thing the first was uh, to work on Laser Squad 2, because Laser Squad 1 was uh, quite successful. They really enjoyed working on it, and they felt that they were uh, they felt that they should make a sequel. And uh, thing the second was to uh, dump Blade Software and find a quote-unquote real publisher. Uh, so they took their ideas from Laser Squad 1 and expanded on them. Now, Laser Squad 1 was kind of very basic-looking, not really top-down, but very kind of Atari-ish. It had very Atari-ish looking graphics, very blocky and whatever. So uh, they took the ideas from Laser Squad 1 and they gave them a, a 3D isometric view and they created a kind of new basic combat system. And overall, they fleshed out a pretty complete demo without much in the way of you know very deep story or development. It was more of a tech demo to say, hey, look, this is what we can do. Uh, let's make a whole game out of this. Uh, they started shopping it around to a very short list of publishers because at this time they realized that getting a good publisher was probably the only way that they were going to proceed and be successful. 
one company on their short list that they really, really wanted to get together with was uh, Microprose Software. Uh, they really liked Microprose because they had recently published uh, Sid Meier's Civilization. And, uh, you know, that being a very deep strategy game, they felt that Microprose was kind of a good home for their tactical strategy game. So they showed the demo to Microprose, and Microprose execs, or, you know, the people that look at these demos, really, really loved it. But uh, they concluded that, you know, it's just not a Microprose game. It needs to be deeper than just, you know, walking around and, and shooting bad guys, even though it does take some smarts to, to do it properly. They were the ones at Microprose that suggested the theme of, well, why don't we make the bad guys UFOs? Julian and Nick thought that that was a good idea, and, uh, and they went along with it. And kind of in the process of modding this game to, you know, combat aliens and UFO landings and all that, they dreamed up the whole other management geoscape aspect of the game to increase its deepness. So they showed this kind of concept to Microprose, and they loved it. As we can see, the game that started off as Laser Squad 2 had uh, kind of started to become XCOM. Uh, in the meantime, Target Games had been renamed Mythos Games, but still consisted primarily of uh, only the two Gollop brothers. They enlisted two artists from Microprose. One of them did the characters in the game, and one of them did the, uh, in, did the terrain. So with this little small team, uh, it took an additional three years to develop, and XCOM UFO Defense released in 1994. Uh, the game released in Europe and Australia under the name UFO Enemy Unknown and uh, was actually renamed XCOM UFO Defense for its U.S. debut. I believe there was some type of legal issue with calling it UFO in the States. Uh, it sold 600,000 units on the PC alone, and uh, half of those sales were in the U.S., which at the time was unheard of for a, uh, a European game or a game that was developed and marketed uh, initially in Europe. Moby Games gives, even today, the game an 89 on 100. GameSpot gives it a 9.0, and IGN gives it a 9.4. Uh, it's made countless, countless, countless Hall of Fame lists and best of lists. XCOM UFO Defense was a deep, complex, and infinitely replayable strategy game. It was an incredible success. So this success gave, uh, kind of pushed Microprose forward, and I think it gave the executives a little bit of, uh, of green fever, let's say. And uh, they ordered the Gollops to create a sequel in six months. Julian said with the size of team they had and the resources they had and what they wanted to do for the sequel, this was not possible. So, but Microprose wanted this done. There was no ifs, ands, or buts about it. They wanted a game in six months that they could sell and make more money with. So they came to a compromise. The Gollops, I guess Mythos Software, would, um, or Mythos Games, sorry, would uh, would license the, the code base to Microprose and they would create a sequel internally in six months. Well, with the way things tends to go, tend to go, one year later, XCOM Terror from the Deep uh, released. It wasn't a bad game, honestly it was a fine game, and in fact it did review quite well, but in reality it was really just the same game as XCOM UFO Defense, with a few new combat options and uh, just made much, much, much more difficult. So during this time, Mythos was working on the third game in the series. They went right from the first game, gave off the code to Microprose, said, do what you want for the second game, we're going to start making the third one. So they started working on the third game, which they called XCOM Apocalypse. So it has the same basic premise, 
But uh, instead of taking a place across the entire world, uh, they move further into the future, and the game takes place in a domed city, which actually uh, sits on uh, the area that I'm sitting in right now. Apparently, it's on top of uh, the former city of Toronto, Canada. Uh, it featured a redone interface, enhanced graphics, and even deeper gameplay involving additional aspects like minimizing collateral damage and stopping aliens from infiltrating various uh, companies and organizations across the city. Uh, the big claim for this game is that it also apparently was designed with a quote-unquote self-learning AI. So the game had uh, an AI file which would be written to as you played and it would kind of get used to your tactics. So you'd have to mix things up every once in a while or the aliens would know what to do to take you out. And if two players actually took their AI files, put them on a disc and swapped them, then um, they would have all of a sudden a completely different game experience. So that was a very cool feature. I, I did play this game. I didn't get quite that deep into it, but and I didn't get to try out kind of this swapping of AI files. But if it did indeed work, then that was a pretty impressive, uh, impressive feat at the time. Uh, so again, Mythos programmed the game and Microprose did uh, a lot more of the graphic work. According to Julian Gollop, the collaboration was a disaster and the game was not what he intended and didn't come out as well as he wanted to, but uh, once again, the game reviewed quite well. Uh, finally, after the third game, the fourth game, XCOM Interceptor, came out. This was a bit of a departure which allowed players to pilot the, uh, the Interceptors, intercepting alien UFOs and even flying in space and things like that, kind of more Wing Commander style. And, uh, you know, it was different and, and people didn't care for it a ton. But again, it reviewed relatively well. And uh, XCOM Enforcer, finally fifth game, took place in an alternate timeline and was simply a third-person shooter with no tactical elements whatsoever. It obviously received mixed reviews. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and even way back in uh, Episode 2, the Wing Commander episode... There is a new XCOM game in development by Firaxis Games. It is said to be a faithful reimagining of the original game with modern 3D graphics and just as much tactical goodness as there was in the 1994 game. Uh, you can find out much, much more about XCOM Enemy Unknown, which is the name of the new game, at XCOM.com. That was the scene in California's Mojave Desert five years ago. Our historic first view of the newcomer's ship. Theirs was a slave ship carrying a quarter million beings bred to adapt and labor in any environment. But they've washed ashore on Earth with no way to get back to where they came from. And in the last five years, the newcomers have become the latest addition to the population of Los Angeles. Alienation, the Newcomers Podcast, is a fan cast devoted to the groundbreaking but short-lived TV series Alienation. This series tackles social issues like racism, bigotry, and intolerance with an alien twist. Each month, we will bring you a podcast dedicated to a single episode. The host will give you their thoughts on the episode, as well as some little-known behind-the-scenes information. So please subscribe to Alienation, the Newcomers Podcast on iTunes, or visit our website at alienationpodcast.com. Where can you get XCOM today? Uh, I may have mentioned it already in the show, but uh, the entire XCOM series of five games that I just kind of described uh, can be purchased via Steam, either individually or as an XCOM pack for $14.99 US. 
Uh, I bought them all, but I played only the original game and XCOM Apocalypse. The original game ran with no problem whatsoever in uh, in DOSBox, but uh, Apocalypse I found in the intro movie at the very least had some uh, some very minor graphical issues. There was some uh, some colors were off and and things like that. But once you actually got into the game, things seemed to run quite well on my my Windows 7 64 machine. So does XCOM hold up today? The big question of the show. I am not a fan of tactical turn-based strategy games. I assumed at the time when I was young that I didn't have the patience because I was a kid and blah, blah, blah. But it turns out even today, I'm frankly just not that good at the things. Uh, despite saying that, and the, despite the fact that I you know, died over and over and over again after you know in my second or third alien encounter, I really enjoyed playing the game. I may have died a lot, but it was really fun messing up over and over. Uh, the suspense created in the battlescape with the hidden alien movement phase, the eerie soundtrack, and things like the variety of weapons and the variety of tactics you can use, they really do make this game fun even today. So I can say without reservation that even though I did not like, I don't really care for these types of games, uh, that I really, really did enjoy it. And since I don't have any nostalgia for this game, I can say that without... You know, it's not like Wing Commander, it's not like SimCity, where I can say, oh, when I was a kid, this was the most awesome game in the world. I didn't play it. So, uh, you know, with no reservations, yes, this is a fun game. You guys should give it a try if if you care about these kinds of games in any way. And even if you don't, and even if you thought you weren't good at them, you can still have a great time for, you know, five bucks. So before I close things out, I actually did get an email from, uh, from a listener named Andreas. So uh, Andreas writes, Hi, Joe. I first played Enemy Unknown when visiting some friends abroad. I was 13 at the time, and nobody really knew how the game worked, but once I figured out the turn-based system, I just got more and more hooked. Back home, I bragged on and on about the game, probably to the point that my friends wanted to smack me in the face for just pronouncing an X, but I couldn't find the game in a store anywhere. Then, finally, on one fine day, I found the PlayStation version secondhand. Now, before you back away in horror, the PlayStation version was actually near a perfect port of the original. The only differences were higher resolution graphics, CD quality sound, cutscenes after missions, and unfortunately, extremely long load times before and after missions. All the rest was exactly the same. My friends were disappointed at first. I had hyped the game so much that they expected the graphics to look astonishing. Once they had played it for themselves, though, they all agreed with me. XCOM was a classic. One of the best games ever. There's something so special about it. In most strategy games, soldiers are just an expendable resource. In XCOM, they all have a name and a personality made up of carefully balanced stats. You really get the feeling that they're a tight band of brothers and nobody is expendable. It's very hard to do justice when explaining it to somebody who never played it. I think texture designer Bob Kathman said it best. Your hand-picked squad would be all healthy and then they'd just start getting hammered in one turn. You were helpless to do anything until the chaos ended and you're sitting there in shock, gawking at all of the carnage and, okay, your turn. Now, that's what freaking XCOM is like. If you need more memories or of other entries in the XCOM series, I'd be happy to provide them. I even wrote a huge four-part blog about the series a few years ago. Really looking forward to the episode. Well, thanks a lot, Andreas. That's that's a really awesome, really great, really detailed email. And uh, you know, if you want to send me that uh, that link to that big blog post of yours, I can uh, put in the show notes or link it on the site or whatever. But um, thank you for that. And you know, I agree. And it's probably a point I didn't uh, I didn't stress quite enough 
as I was explaining the game, but you know, <laughs> this is probably one of the reasons that I find the game quite difficult to play because I do start to feel for my soldiers and I do start to not want to lose them because I get invested in them because like you said, they do have names and they do have stats and they do progress as time goes on and you get upset when they die and things can turn and they can all, many of them can die very, 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 very quickly. So thanks again for that email. So that'll do, that'll do for this week. Uh, again, thanks to Mike for, for the voicemail and anyone else, please, please send in voicemails if you so desire for next week. Oh my Lord, I am so excited. I hinted at it at the beginning of the show, but we are going to talk about Space Quest. Oh yes. This is one of my favorite game series of all time. It's awesome. It's hilarious. Uh, well, maybe I won't give away what I think about it. So we'll stop there. But anyways, I've had quite a few requests to cover Space Quest and with the current Space Quest news and all the stuff that's been going on lately, I think it's the perfect time to cover it. I'm not quite sure at this point how I'm going to go about it. I may just cover the first game. I may try and cover the first three or four games. I may cover all of them. Uh, I, I just don't know. But as I said, if anyone has anything to say about Space Quest in any way, shape, or form, don't worry. If I only cover the first game and you want to talk about Space Quest 4, feel free. Send me an email. You know, I've been remiss so far in the show to not thank my good friend Rick Moyer for uh, for doing the intro, the outro, the bumpers, and all that really, really cool audio stuff that makes it sound like I actually know what I'm doing a little bit. So please check out Rick Moyer and all of his cool work at Moyer Multimedia. Dot com. Uh, he does a lot of voiceover stuff, and if you have a podcast and you want theme song and uh, bumpers and any cool stuff like that, he will do it for you. He will do a great job. So aside from that, please check out the Facebook group. So just go to Facebook and search for the Upper Memory Block podcast. We have a lot of fun in there. I post all kinds of stuff. I already posted all the stuff about the Kickstarters in there. It'll show up in the show notes, but it comes up first there. That's where the breaking news comes in. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, the show's Twitter account is UMB Show. And as I keep saying exhaustively, and I may <laughs> slow down this a bit because I don't want to irritate people, send me an email at podcast at umbcast.com. Thank you all very much, and we'll see you next time for Space Quest up in the upper memory block. <laughs> You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.